Welcome to the Bentonville Beacon, where we bring you success stories from business leaders and owners about their triumphs and growth in the Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas community. You'll hear about how Bentonville has been the backdrop for incredible growth, not only for businesses and their employees, but in their personal lives as well. Tune in, subscribe, and enjoy hearing about Bentonville, where you get more of what you want and less of what you don't. Welcome back to the Bentonville Beacon Podcast, where we're sharing stories and advice from the leaders and businesses sparking the rise of Bentonville. One of the fastest growing and most dynamic cities in the United States, nestled in those Ozark Mountains of Northwest Arkansas in America's heartland. Hey, I'm your host, James Bell, and I am thrilled to virtually share the studio today with Megan Kenneth Bowman, who is CEO and founder of Stopwatch. In addition to leading Stopwatch, Megan is a member of both uh, Fast Company's Executive Board and the Forbes Technology Council. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you bet. Let's get started with one of my favorite questions, which is tell us your story. Uh, You know, lean in anywhere you want, but do tell us how you ended up in Bentonville, how you develop your expertise in CPG and supply chain, and what was the motivating force that moved you from working for somebody else to being an entrepreneur? Yeah, happy to share. It's it's kind of a fun story, actually. Thanks for asking, James. So about nine years ago, it was announced that Walmart was going to buy Jet. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big, big announcement. And I happened to be particularly interested because I had been a code monkey smashing Mark Lore's Quidzy code into Amazon many, many years earlier. Very low level, you know, nobody, nobody special, but um, but definitely part of that kind of magic transition for soap.com, diapers.com, et cetera. And one thing I noticed about the code that Laurie, you know, and his team were writing is that it was taking th- into th- consideration things like distance, volume, liquid weight. You know, it was it was revolutionary at the time because Amazon, you know, was still kind of looking at, at books and DVDs. And I remember coming home to my husband in Seattle and saying, hey, you know, let, like I've got this elegant, gorgeous code. A little far-fetched, but you know you can you can make money shipping diapers and marshmallows and basketball hoops like with this algorithm. And you know we didn't think anything of it. And then a, a family member of mine said, "Hey, you know this thing's probably going to happen." And my husband looked at me and he goes, "We got to move to Bentonville." <laughs> um, and so we moved here, you know, nine years ago, sight unseen, with the intention of building Stopwatch. So definitely a, a culture shock. I love it here. I'll tell you that the the funniest thing was when my my son first went to elementary school, he was shocked because on the playgrounds, they split up the dodgeball teams by vendors and Walmart. And he came home and said, mom, are we a vendor? Or are we Walmart? And I said, well, neither. I guess I'm an unemployed and your dad's a professor. So <laughs> just pick the team that's the, that looks the best. So that's really kind of how we, how we crashed here in Bentonville. I'll tell you that, you know, I, I, we couldn't start a company right off the bat. There was a lot of work to do. And the premise of Stopwatch is is fairly complicated insofar as we believe that uh, SAP and Oracle have really been asleep at the wheel for the mm-hmm. last probably 15, 20 years. And the biggest piece that they have been um, really ignoring, and I don't blame them for ignoring it because it's hard and kind of crazy and expensive, is, is receiving uh, mixed data signals from kind of, you know, everywhere out there and then normalizing it back into the system. When Amazon was the only game in town for CPG and or a lot of the volume was going through 
brick and mortar retail, you know, those economics weren't super important uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, we figured out really well as an industry how to ship large pallets of things to centralized locations. But the bet my husband and I took was that more and more people were going to be shopping online and that they were going to be buying cheaper stuff like chips, trash bags, and toothpaste. And that there's nothing more exciting than watching a, an angry nerd uh, seek revenge on his old company. So that's why we're here. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, before we dive in further, would it be helpful to talk about supply chain and what's happened in the last couple of years? You know, I guess I, it's a vast understatement to say that supply chain has had some problems that we were able to notice the last couple of years. And I don't think most people realize just how complicated supply chain was. I mean, gosh, I when I just think about it a little bit, I'm surprised that an apple receives reaches my hands for really pennies. I don't think most consumers hadn't understood how many sort of uh, choke points and places for failure there were in the supply chain. We're still having a hangover for, for them, of course. In fact, you know, for example, with chips, and when I say chips, I do mean both electronic chips and free delays. If you've seen the news, I probably just uh, shelf life this episode mentioning the free delays crisis. But why did this really happen in the first place? And, and what's wrong with the supply chain that we're having a hangover today? I think there are probably people that are a lot more in in tuned with the mechanics of supply chain than I am, but I'm I'm very good at systems and understanding relationships between things like time, space, mathematical um, kind of velocity, uh, a little bit more on the aerodynamics kind of or thermodynamics kind of scale. And you know the 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 thing I can liken it best to is you know if you're on a sailboat and you're you know one degree off, and you know all of a sudden you end up totally on the other side of the world. That is incredibly simple. But but what I see has happened is, you know, there's there have been great systems over time. And, you know, as things have fluxed, whether it's in the cost of goods or the sourcing mechanisms or, you know, four decimal points or the yen or, I mean, like, like systems are constantly changing. And as those inputs are changing, you've got a group of executives and and this is, you know, we did the same thing at Hallmark sitting around and saying, okay, that's a small thing. Are we going to totally like stop everything and adjust for it while it's small? Mm-hmm. And I mean, like we're all PL, you know, experts. Like it, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. We hear the, the we hear the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And, and so really, you know, COVID was essentially a, a, a mountain of a lot of little one degree issues all the way from, you know, how things scan at shelf to, you know, how we count things, uh, you know, if you're thinking about at the retail level to how many people we let in the store all the way back to, you know, what's the, the, you know, the tree that has to be shaved down to make that particular piece of, you know, cottonell paper. It, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I, I know that it was hurtful to a lot of people, but it was probably as a as a data scientist one of one of the most interesting times because it it really was just a death of a thousand cuts um, on a mass system scale. So yeah, it, interesting and and tragic at the same time. Sure, and and imagine we had a I wouldn't call it new, but a as with all things COVID, nothing was really new. It was just vastly magnified. Um, yeah. I imagine changing consumer behaviors uh, had something to do with it too, behaviors and expectations. How did those affect 
or make these problems worse? Gosh, it's hard to it's hard to separate me as a mom versus me as a as a business owner. I'll tell mm-hmm. you from a from a business perspective, you know, uh, we'd been working on Stopwatch on the the infrastructure and the technology for about three and a half years. So we'd been testing it, we'd been building it. I'd you know been part of the Harvest Group and then started One Stone Solutions Group to continue to test and build and. You know, we were to the point where, you know, just before COVID, we were going to all these really, you know, high level CTOs and saying, hey, you know what, have we got a deal for you? You know, only 2% of your total product, you know, fits into this weird bucket right now. But, you know, that's going to be a real problem. We had all these beautiful projections of how in 2030, everybody was going to be bankrupt except like, you know, all birds or something. And, you know, so it was really kind of this call to, to, to action. And we, we had so many great meetings and were treated so well. And what every single senior leader told us was what you're describing is extremely important. We see it. It is not urgent. Only 2% of my total product in my billion-dollar industry is moving through this kind of awkward channel, as you call it. And we are aware that it's unprofitable, and we're aware that we have no visibility there. However, I can get one more facing, you know, in 10 more stores that, you know, or, you know, 10 more mods in Walmart and all of a sudden, you know, my, my shareholders are happy. So it was, it was really kind of a weird time pre-COVID for us because we had this kind of Cadillac or Ferrari of a software that this is not how you should ever build software. We didn't do product market fit. We literally just built what we knew needed to be built and, you know, funded it ourselves and just knew that it was it. Well, you know, just before COVID, we're getting all these no's and literally, you know, $6 million and, you know, a bunch of like developers. We've been together for a long time. We're kind of all looking at each other. And it was crazy. About two days into COVID, I got a call from General Mills and the head guy there said, I just dug your card out of the trash can. Hmm. I'm, I'm overnighting, couriering, hand, handing you a check for a half million dollars, spin up a server. Let's go. Wow. And that's literally how we took off. So the consumer behavior, you know, went from, you know, 2% of transactions for a company like Mills up to 60% overnight. Now, you know, people keep telling me like, wow, you really saw this coming. And that is, we did not see anything coming. (laughs) We were almost like, you know, completely bankrupt and dead on the side of the road. Definitely overbuilt for, for what was nowhere close to coming. And then when COVID really, you know, uh, pushed off, because we had built it so wide, deep, and and a little bit crazy, we were onboarding you know Fortune one and Fortune five hundred companies in ten days, and they they couldn't believe it. And so it was, it was really a right place, right time for us in terms of of building really ridiculous technology that nobody really wants until they want it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, you were prepared to be lucky, but there is something to be said for startup luck. Uh, a oh, lot of companies so have made it that way. <laughs> so it, lucky. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think any founder who doesn't admit that luck has something to do with it is uh, off base. <laughs> yeah, I would even argue, like when I like now that I read all these startup books and how you're supposed to go to market, I'm like, holy cow, we totally did it wrong. Like we we did it completely wrong. Nobody should have given us money. <laughs> who builds a giant product that nobody uses <laughs> and that then tries to sell it? <laughs> yeah, that is definitely backwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you stand up in front of, uh, uh, you know, folks who are getting ready to start a company and tell them that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had, I do have to say, you know, my first job out of college, I was, you know, a higher number two or three. 
of a, for a very, very impressive woman who still is probably one of the Midwest's, you know, leading female founders. Um, and for me working for somebody like that, we actually, I, I watched her build companies and I watched some of them fall. I watched some of them go through the roof, you know, everything. And I, I just kept saying, man, like that's the type of work I want to do because that work, I mean, you have to be a little bit crazy, but, but that work, you know, has a shot at making a really big difference. You also have the sh- a shot at being completely broke and, you know, awful, but I didn't see that. I, I just, I saw a lot of, you know, positive wins and I've been part of a couple failing startups. I've had a couple of good ones and I think you just keep playing the game. That's right. Well, that's great. Well, let's talk about Stopwatch. We haven't really dove into what is it you actually yeah. do and, and you know, how are you making today's supply chain better? How are you helping uh, your customers? Yeah. So the way I like to describe Stopwatch is um, an ERP wrapper. So most companies have a really big enterprise resource planning system that they bought, you know, 10, 15 years mm-hmm. ago. It's usually, you know, Oracle, NetSuite, you know, SAP, some Microsoft Dynamics. Within the last maybe five years, you know, they've gotten hip to the cloud, you know, and so these kind of really big systems that have have really not changed a whole lot in terms of their neural dynamic connection with all of the other outside feeds. So, you know, when you log into Microsoft and go to your Outlook, let's say, that was never designed to interact with, you know, the full company product, right? Mm-hmm. I'm cool with that. The interesting thing is as social and, and shopping and everything started to change, those signals couldn't get back fast enough. So, you know, there were a bunch of little tools out there. You know, you can, you know, scrape your ratings, you can get your reviews, you can, I mean, a lot of little siloed things. But at the end of the day, if they weren't coming back on and 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 perching on something that actually was connected to cost of goods and inventory and like, you know, if we if we add this keyword and we sell more. Do we need more raw materials? Yes. Do we need to understand the lead time? Yes. I mean, just basic connection points like that. And so really what Stopwatch does is wrap around the enterprise resource planning, suck everything out, sits in that middle layer, and then pretty much everything on top of it, whether it's the retailer data, whether it's syndicated data, whether it's social, whether it's political, like whatever it is, it goes into Stopwatch and is normalized around one single product. So, you know, what I get really excited about uh, telling the story is, you know, back in the 80s, you know, when Procter & Gamble used to come up with like a a great new product idea, they would give it um, a symbol or a a number, right? Like this is product, you know, spring one, two, three, four. And all their guys would go out on the road and sell spring one, two, three, four. But Target would want it to be, you know, spring three, two, one. (laughs) And Walmart would want it to be you know, one, two spring. And, and basically like when things actually went into production, one SKU that came out of product development really went into production is, you know, an average of 15, when you look at kind of all the different ways. And so GS1, the one company who's supposed to keep all this together has not done that. So, you know, when you've got a barcode on the back of a product you know, a different barcode could be on the back of the same product in a different retailer. And, and it's really kind of that reverse engineering. And so what Stopwatch does is I like to say we put the genie back in the bottle and say, okay, you know, if you had one SKU, how would you build this out differently, you know, as a brand new company? And that's what Stopwatch is really fun. We work with the Fortune 500 companies and we're just digging through a lot of stuff and basically reversing things down. But we've also really taken off with the pre-revenue companies. So we've gotten really hot in the venture capital market where people are saying, 
hey, you know, I'm going to invest in this consumer brand. And like between Shopify, Salesforce, and Stopwatch, we don't ever need to buy an ERP. We literally have the entire system put together and can scale up and down without a huge cost. And um, so these kind of data practices are kind of popping up overnight. So we we just love playing in both spaces for very different reasons. The the you know the pre revenue because we get to architect kind of how it should be from the ground up, and the big companies because we get to like dig in and find all these really interesting stories about how things changed and when something became a bogo and then how it got a weird wrapper and that changed the number and you know all that sort of stuff actually really matters when you're when you're talking about you know raw cost of goods and how things are built up to a finished good and then and then commercialized. Yeah, you bet. You know, you mentioned venture capital a moment ago. You know, a company such as Stopwatch probably struggles if it can't get off the ground with venture capital as an accelerant. So can we talk about fundraising for a moment? And I'm thinking about you've had a couple of pretty substantial raises, but that makes you one of the part of a tiny percentage yeah, of women who have successfully raised venture capital. Will you talk about your experience fundraising and how in the world did you buck the trend? Um, yeah, I will. I'll, I'll say, you know, first of all, I want to say there are so many different ways to start a company. And mm-hmm. so, you know, venture is a great fit for me, my personality. I, what I like about venture is I feel like it, you know, I'm an athlete at heart. I feel like it pulls me through the process mm-hmm. and you're either, you either win or lose. And, and I enjoy that. It's very stressful for a lot of people. And, you know, the idea of not actually making money is also very stressful for a lot of people. For me, I really love the process of venture capital for all the reasons a lot of people hate it. That being said, I turned down a lot of money. And so I would argue that a lot of women, um, and I've talked with a lot of female founders, you know, the first check-in is often fairly desperate because mm-hmm. they you know, they get 800 no's and then somebody's going to write, you know, a very small check for 30% of the company and they look like a savior. And all of a sudden they start the cap table in a really tough position. I'm not judging. Like I've been right. there. I've, I've made some really stupid decisions early on, but the problem with a cap table is, you know, it just gets worse if that makes sense. And so I don't know that females, I know I didn't. I, I know I had to have a lot of people around me saying, don't take that money. I know that you have to, you know, either let somebody go or, you know, sell a car or whatever, but do not take that money that it, you're going to hate yourself in five years. And so I've been real, real, real blessed to have people around me to say no. So I've actually turned down more capital than I've taken on. Great. That being said, you know, I would say, I think in Q3, I think te- uh, Crunchbase just reported that like venture capital to females is down to the one point. Three mm-hmm. percent, and I think we were at an all-time high last year of two point two percent. Yeah, and that's just that—that's just inexcusable. And I mean, my my brothers and sisters of color and LGBTQ, and you know, the interesting thing is the more kind of funds that I invest in personally that are focused on diversity are out returning the traditional funds ten to one. Now the base is smaller, you know, mm-hmm. so let's make sure we're doing the math right. I mean, Bessemer and SoftBank are always going to look like the big guys because they're playing off of a big base. But when I take, you know, apples to apples funds, you know, $20 million funds or $100 million funds or, you know, kind of these localized funds and say, okay, I I literally can go down the website and say, okay, you know, do they have a diversity of mix of founders? And I can pretty much put them up against different funds and they're outperforming, you know, about four to one in my, in my humble estimation. And so for me, you know, I'm, I'm all about women's rights, but I also really like to win. And if there's a winning combination of, you know, different 
ways people think, different, like to me, that's actually mitigating risk, not bringing risk on. And I think I've had a lot of conversations, especially really early in my capital raising days where, you know, I, I came into the room and I looked like a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can remember days that I actually, I have a, a neighbor who's a, a, you know, a leadership coach at Walmart and I rented him to come with me to Kansas city wow. to, to sit at the table with me because, because I would get, I would get the meetings and I would get the attention. And when they'd ask him what he did, you know, he had some really like light answer and, you know, we could tell who, you know, how that worked. And I mean, I've got stories upon stories where just unconscious bias. And I think I've actually had a lot of unconscious bias in the system too. So I don't even want to say I've been innocent, but it, but it is a little bit crazy if you get around a bunch of, you know, even men, I mean, just telling stories about, you know, hilarious venture capital, like oofs. We've all got a lot of them and they are, they're oofy. <laughs> they are oofy. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Um, you know, it, it is a wonder, you know, we, we say that vulture, I mean, sorry, venture capitalists are greedy, but I wonder how greedy are they really? Because it's, it's a wonder that gamblers. they, yeah, it's, it's a wonder <laughs> though, that they haven't picked up on the data that shows that. We'll, we'll just call it, we'll start with women, but uh, you could just say non-white male founders build more profitable companies and more it's, sustainable it's, companies. Yeah. I mean, what I, so this is probably going to be too much, but I always tell, so I, so there is a gentleman who runs a very successful business here in Northwest Arkansas who would die if I said his name, but mm-hmm. um, he reached out to me. He was supposed to meet more friends. That was his mandate from his executive coach. And he said, she looks friendly. Reached out to me on LinkedIn. We went and had coffee. And he's telling me about his business model. It's completely different than mine. Sure. It's evergreen. It's you know very like long-standing, a beautiful model. And he said, so tell me about your business. So I said, well, I'm exactly the opposite. I'm building something really big and I don't want to exit for millions. I want to exit for billions or I don't want to exit at all. Like I either want to blow up or I want to be billions. Um, and he was like, that's interesting. And I said, hey, come back to my house. There were 15 developers working in my house at the time. Hmm. And we were broke as hell. We were so broke. And I brought him in and I told the guys, I said, guys, I'm going to pitch him. I'm going to pitch him to invest in us to pay, make our payroll this Friday. And they kind of all looked at me and we sat down at the kitchen table and I brought out a whiteboard and he's very mathematical. He's a Berkeley you know, scientist. And so I basically drew out the algorithmic mapping and he goes, yeah, I can get behind this. And I said, okay, so like, you know, we're playing Moneyball here. And he goes, I could go to Vegas right now and put it all on reds and, and be in a better spot. And what I said was, well, I wouldn't bet against me any day. So if that's your move, like that's fine, but I'll, but I'll see you in Vegas and I will shred you. And that's, that's how I got my first check. So, I mean, you, you have to really be out there. <laughs> and that was at my kitchen table. <laughs> but you know, uh- we dropped an episode with Phil Libin this week. And one of the things oh, he awesome. said, yeah, it, well, one of the things he said that you have to do is be memorable if you're oh, raising yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. I would call that memorable. What advice would you give to other women raising funding? Call me. I think Excellent. the biggest thing is you have in my, so I've got this little text chain of, some women that, you know, are in Forbes all the way down to women who have failed 15 times. And basically it's our, it's our wall of shame. And any woman can write something in and just say like, this happened today. And everybody's just like, get up bad. Like, let's go. Like, 
like, you know, you you can do and it. It's, it sounds really cheesy, but I think the, the big thing for me and, and what my team at Stopwatch does a really good job of is they know that raising funds is really lonely. It's not something the whole company can do. And it would be stupid to have, you know, that much energy put toward, you know, one single activity. And so, you know, I'm, I'm actually raising Series A. We're, we're around in the corner right now. And, you know, for the last five weeks, I've been in quarantine from the team. So we've got a team of 20, my favorite people on the planet. And my mm-hmm. chief operating officer doesn't let me come to anything because that's how much focus it takes. I mean, you have to get a lot of no's. It has to be a lot of volume. Right. And, it, you know, it's just a lot of work on just one thing. And, and I, sometimes I'll send him a note and I'll say, I'm just kind of lonely. Can you send me some fuel? And the team has this little chat and they just start dropping in good things that have happened. Hey, you know, uh, we, we closed this customer. Oh my gosh, this customer that was really unsatisfied now loves us. They brought a friend. I mean, just little things like that. And it just kind of breathes life back into you mm-hmm. to that horrible no that you had just received about like how not only is your idea dumb, but like, you know, you are like, you shouldn't even be walking on the planet. I mean, that's how you kind of walk out feeling. Yeah. And then you come back to your team and you're like, wait, no, we are doing something like I'm going to hear what I needed to hear because I, I really don't think anybody gives malicious advice. I think, I think there's always something to be heard. I think whether or not I can hear it at the time, yeah. um, is, you know, is, is right or wrong. But, um, but that's, that's the biggest thing is get people around you and get people around you who have failed and who are afraid to say that, that they have failed, um, or afraid, not afraid to say, because I, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think as women, you know, this was something I, I actually shared with April and Stan, who are also great fundraisers here in town. Is I, I said, you know, you don't want to say anything bad about your business because you know everybody's an investor, and so like if you ever don't have a smile on your face, you know, it gets published that you're going down. Mm-hmm. And I remember I pitched somebody down in the square area at a building, and we were just—I was so exhausted and. He was a very nice gentleman. He was in town and he said, okay, so pitch me. And I, I looked at him. I said, do you have a checkbook on you right now? And he's like, no, I don't. And I said that I'm not going to pitch you. Like that's how, like I need the money right now and I don't have wow. any time. And a, a receptionist heard that interaction. And, you know, the next day I'm getting calls from a bunch of people saying, you know, oh, I heard at church that, you know, your business is going out and all this stuff. Oh, I'm no. like, how did that happen? But it, but it does, it, it, it puts that in your mind that you have to always look like everything's going well. And I would argue that there have been more companies that I have seen just kind of close overnight than companies that I actually see struggle and, mm-hmm. and live on for the long time. So I would say, don't be afraid to say what's, what's wrong. And if you're talking with friends who have just knocked it out of the park, you're not talking to the right friends. That's right. I mean, it- Frankly, it's just more believable if some things are wrong with your company. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, because- but, I mean, I always say I always say we're allowed three big blemishes. There are there are at least three things least. that are absolutely detestable, and we need to be ready to talk to those. But like every company has three serious problems at least. Yeah, you bet. Well, sticking with the theme of, of uh, challenges women face, uh, real quick. As a woman, how do you balance being a mother, a wife, and an entrepreneur? Well. My husband, I, I, it's hard. There are so many amazing women that do it without a partner. Mm-hmm. So I want to say that it is, it is doable. I will say my, my partner has, he knew, I mean, I, I built a business model, you know, I failed three times before I met him. And so I think that was something really critical is, you know, he's a professor, he has a steady job, it's tenure track, um, nice. you know, it, 
you know, we're not making bank, but like we won't go hungry. And I think, I think that stability has been really helpful. There's a different kind of pressure when you feel like you're going to not be able to feed your kids. So that that's, and again, I count that huge privilege for me of, of my situation. So, so I would say I'm, I'm in a really good spot. I think, I think the key is for me has always been to let my, my, my boys know that like, this is a family business and that in this family, we serve others before we serve ourselves. So, you know, if we don't have Christmas, it's because we made December 30th payroll and mm. they, and they're okay with that. Like, so when people come over, you know, they know that we're in service to the people that work at Stopwatch and we're in service to the investors. And they know that we're playing for the long haul. I always say we're playing for that, you know, cottage on Santa Barbara beach. Um, <laughs> not that we really care, but like, I, I just let them know that this is the life that we've chosen and they get to be a part of it. Now, consequently, both my boys are incredible entrepreneurs and, you know, I, I think have a really healthy relationship with money and possessions and kind of relationships. And I, I think that's really cool. Well, it's not hard to tell where they uh, learn that from, uh, and, <laughs> well, you know, you, you do have to, you know, live like a crazy person so you can live crazy great later. Right. Well, I always say, I just, yeah, get, live like no one else. So you can give like no one else is where I, where I get really, really excited. Good. Exactly. Yeah. That's perfect. Well, let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about Bentonville and, and Northwest Arkansas. Why is the, this the right place for your company? It's a great question. So I would, I mean, let's just start with the economics, living in Seattle, building us, you know, a, a, a technology-based startup in retail. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a couple of problems. Number one, the cost of living. Number two, it's a venture rich market. And so really good development talent tended to leave what, you know, as the letters changed. So, you know, the best talent would move to whoever closed, you know, the biggest round and they'd go and they'd build and they wouldn't have to have a lot of accountability and they'd go find another round and another round. And so for me and, and I, my brother is an incredible developer and has had serious success, but, but just kind of watching that, I realized that I'm not, I don't want to say not smart enough, but just not maybe I'm too OCD. Like, like I knew if we were going to build something, it needed to be the same guys for about five years because we needed to kind of finish each other's sentences. And I mm-hmm. knew in a Seattle or a Boston or, you know, even a Denver market, the developer kind of culture is just a little bit different. That being said, the, so we could afford to live here. Developer talent, I think is fantastic here between uh, Missouri, S&T, uh, Michigan, you know, Austin, like there are some really good Midwest and, and, for me, I, I really like .NET. It's like the Latin of programming, and um, it's very prevalent in things like Walmart, JB Hunt. I mean, the stuff that's very you know organized. It's not sexy and you know mobile app VR kind of stuff, but it's the stuff that like big monies gets made off of. And so I knew from a from a culture perspective, this was going to be a really good place to build a team. The last kind of two things, and again, I'm I'm very economically driven. The state is awesome. They're a pain in the to work with like they are everywhere but, yeah, <laughs> yeah but i think i think over time if you you know i you know i treated the state as if it was a was a was a venture capitalist mm-hmm. and so i'm so you know lucky I, we've gotten tax credits for all of our investors at like 33% i think we have the highest tax so anybody that writes a dollar to me gets you know 33 cents back in credits. And then those credits, if they're not a Arkansas investor, they can sell them for 90 cents on the dollar. Right. I mean, it's just, it, to me, like I'm just doing the math and I'm like, this is where we should be because it's more, like people make more money if they invest here. Yeah. And then the state actually, believe it or not, it has a venture fund that has has paid for a lot of stopwatch. 
And, you know, it's non-dilutive funding. They have a, a silent seat. So when you're looking to balance out your cap table, they're really good players having the cap table. They're, they're very strict. So you, I always tell people like, you know, a really good company or a really well-run company, if, if they have been, you know, state venture on it, because the, the, the requirements are, are incredibly stringent, it's taxpayer money and that sort of thing. But, but, you know, I think we've, I think we've brought in at least a half million dollars from the state in matching funds. And they, you know, they'll do things like, Hey, if you raise, you know, $300,000 by the state, we'll match it. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Well, you know, how do you feel about the vibrancy and sort of the growing success of our startup ecosystem here in Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas? And, and talk also about ways you've had the opportunity to contribute to help these entrepreneurs. I don't think I'm out of the weeds yet. So like, I, like, I don't want to think I've made it. I think sure. I really love seeing through Endeavor. I think there's some groups from Tulsa coming over. Like mm-hmm. I really, really have enjoyed just getting to know founders and, and people who want to found typically because I'm so into my own thing. I can't be viewed as an investor because you know, but I am a, the biggest cheerleader. I am absolutely convinced that if anybody is going to go for something like this, that they feel really good about it. And I love to, to have lunch and talk with those people and just focus on the good because 90% of the people are telling them everything that's not going to work. And I believe that there's a seed of, of major success in every single thing. And so that's been, I, I just feel like I've made more friends and, you know, I'm not such a weirdo, <laughs> still a weirdo, but. <laughs> uh, we are all a little bit. Um, yeah. Some of us more than others. I'm going to point at myself for the folks who are just listening to audio. I'm pointing at myself. You know, as with many builders, you're a generous giver of your time. And uh, thank you for that. You know, whether you're in CPG or supply chain or otherwise, what should other founders be thinking? Why should they have a, a presence here in Bentonville? Great question. I mean, again, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on, on the STEM talent. The, the cost of living, although it is going up, but it's still ridiculously reasonable. And then, you know, the opportunity as educated, and I think it's up to more founders to educate their peers because if, you know, I love startup junkie and I, lo- I love all the like formal education part, um, parameters, but I think it's a lot better when I get a text from Michael Palladino that says, hey, a new tax law just passed and I'm in on it. You want to get in. I mean, like that, that, that type of energy is, is kind of like get up and go energy. And so I think, you know, making friends here and, you know, I, I think one thing I really love about Northwest Arkansas is it doesn't feel to me like you have to, to work super fast and be super flashy. You know, I think a lot of venture capital raising, um, I remember early, early on when I, w- it wasn't my own company, but I was on, you know, a, a director's board of a, of a different company, you know, we'd go into Neiman Marcus and put on jackets mm-hmm. and, you know, take the tags off and then put them back on and put them, you know, and that whole game is just such a waste of time and energy when you've got so much good business to do. And so I, you know, thankfully I don't think Northwest Arkansas is there yet. And, and I'm grateful for that. You know, I met with a company uh, earlier today that an investor brought over to see me and a couple of other folks. And, you know, everybody waltzes in in their outdoor shirt and untucked. You know, it's just, that's the way things are. You don't have to throw on a suit every day. I mean, I put on a dress shirt and sometimes a jacket and so on. But the reality is you you don't have to do that um, all the time here. And it just makes business business easier to do and it makes it more real. Because you can be real human beings to each other. 
Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing I really like, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So I'm always a little bit critical and I think we're changing that. But Mm -hmm. if you think about kind of, you know, not like, like the everyday wealth, if everyday high net worth individuals that live in this area have, have amassed that wealth really from, from stock in one big company Mm -hmm. that they've had for a really long time. And that's a very different mindset. Like those aren't the people that run to sign up for the angel funds or, you know, like take random bets at the country club. Like, like these are people who have earned their, you know, beautiful wealth through a very different business model. And so I'm always a little bit like I warn people that there is a lot of money here, but if you're not a church and, you know, or you're not, you know, something very traditional, it's hard for people to get their heads around it. I think that's changing quite a yes. bit and it's not bad or good. I would argue that it's been great for me because the number of times that I've sat down, actually, I, I just did it the other day with the Atento Capital was in town and, you know, a really great, smart person said, well, when are you going to be profitable? And I said, I said, that's not the right question to ask. Like we'll be profitable in 2024, but if I said next year, you shouldn't invest in me. And, and he, you know, his mind just blew. And I said, I said, that's not the model. Our model is to raise a bunch of money, burn it, raise it again, burn it. Now, you know, the metrics and everything have to work, but you know, it was just, it was interesting. But I think what it helps me do is really stay on top of my PL. Um, sure. because you know, I, believe me, when it's time to be profitable, like we are gonna be the best profitable company on the planet, but it's it's just a different model. Yeah, that's great. Well, hey, you know, let's talk more about Bentonville, you know, in your roughly, I guess, decade that you've uh, been Almost. here. How has Bentonville changed? And what do you think the next decade's going to look like? I'll just throw you a crystal know. ball on that second half. I don't know. I think I really, I'm excited about the diversity. I, I really, and I say that with with my heart, when we first moved here, you know, I miss my black brothers and sisters. We, we mm-hmm. came from inner city. You know, I just, I missed, I missed color and culture. Yeah. And I can honestly say that, you know, in the, in the nine and a half years that we've been here, we can go to a park and see tons of color and tons of opposite dress and tons of, and so for me, that's really exciting. I think, you know, I don't, I don't think it's adversary. I think it's just that, that to me has been a blessing. So I, I believe that's going to continue. I, I believe that the education is going to continue to, to, to be strong you know, with the resources that we have and a lot of the underwriting that the Waltons do. I mean, we just, we have access to laptops and facilities and things, you know, that are, are pretty incredible. And so I, you know, my, my hope is that the, that Arkansas becomes a much more like food stable. Right. Um, there's a lot of food insecurity in Arkansas, not as much in Northwest Arkansas, but my, you know, my expectation and what I tell people who are, you know, looking for me to invest is like, I want to see the metrics towards mental health development here. And I want to see the metrics towards food insecurity. Like you can't have those two big black eyes and, you know, not have a, a path to changing those. So that's my hope in 10 years, we'll have good mental health, you know, for all ages and stages and, um, and, and be much more respectable in terms of food insecurity. Uh, in relationship to the rest of the country. That's great. You know, make yourself a mental note and I'll try to remember as well. There is a mental health tech company locally that, that could use some mentoring and, and guidance and it's I'll female cheer. led. So oh, I, I think you awesome. might be uh, somebody they should be uh, talking with. Hey, for this next part, I'm going to ask you three really quick rapid fire favorite or sort of favorites questions for Bentonville. Let's start with favorite place to hang out and watch people. My front yard. <laughs> That's a good I answer. Live in a, I live in a vendor community. I oh, just, yes. Love it. Odd. 
odd people. We're all odd. <laughs> Excellent. Favorite place other than at home to relax? I would say definitely the square. The square is just lovely. It's quaint. It is. And finally, favorite restaurants. And I put an S on the M because I haven't encountered anybody who can give me one. Oh, rights. Oh. Rights, 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 and rights. I mean, we are we are meat and potato people. I'm sure there's more like fancy stuff out there, but we, I think half my paycheck goes to rights. We love <laughs> rights. <laughs> and I got a bunch of boys, so, you know, it just kind of works. <laughs> yeah, boys will never turn down barbecue. <laughs> Especially great. not when mom was paying for it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, with that, tell me a story. And what I'm looking for is what I'll call a hashtag because Bentonville story. So something that's kind of unique to hear describes the essence of this place. Yes. I, you know, obviously like I, you know, I'm a weirdo and I'm sure a lot of people love all the mountains and the bikes and it, like, that's all amazing. I'm, I'm more of, I just love the economic development so I always, I always try to find grandparents at the park when my boys were little. And I would just ask them like, how long have you been here? You know, what's your role? And like nine, tens, nine times out of 10, they had this amazing first story, right? Like, you know, I was the first person that brought silver jewelry to, you know, Walmart. You know, I printed, you know, the first whatever. I was with Mr. Sam or, and I just, those are such fun stories because, you know, they would, you know, they were, so I, I just, I look for people with gray hair, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I love to just say like, Hey, what, you know, what are you doing here? What's your history? How long have you been here? Where did you work? And these stories just come out. And I feel like I could write a book on just how many cool, you know, random firsts that, that have come out of these, you know, these miles. Oh my goodness. Well, in your spare time, <laughs> it sounds like you're writing a book. That is so oh, yeah. cool. Gotta, yeah. I'm going to pick up that same pastime. Um, <laughs> what's something that you believe that nobody else believes? Um, <laughs> my team's going to, um, I, I, I don't even want to say it. Um, I, I always wanted to be an espionage. Um, so I, I've just, I, I have a lot of like, you won't find me on my phone in the, um, airport. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm pretty locked down and, and people make fun of me, but. I can see a lot that's going on and I just, I just don't believe that we're ever not being somewhat attacked by tech. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't bother me. I just, it just, it, it's just a very real thing to me. People are always like, oh man, I, I was, you know, I told my friend about Rice Krispies and then I got an ad for Rice Krispies and I'm like, and you think that's an accident? Like, <laughs> like there's some serious technology going on. And um, so I get, I get a lot of crap for that. I went to Bentonville Bike Fest and I went home to Seattle and I'm getting Bentonville Economic Development ads. I don't know how that I mean, happens. But, yeah, blows <laughs> your mind, you know. It is crazy <laughs> what technology can be done with uh, technology now. You know, I haven't asked anybody this question in a, in a bit on this show, but uh, it's my superpower question. It, if you had a superpower and that superpower came with a limitation, what would it be? And if you'd like, I'll give you an example. Yeah, go ahead. Um, mine has evolved over time. One of mine could be that perhaps I could wave my hand and change the outcome of any Arkansas Razorback game. <laughs> okay. The limitation <laughs> is that 
I can't change the outcome of Arkansas-Texas games and we would lose all games to Texas. You know, after, that's a terrible one. I'm throwing that one out. It's like, it's a utilitarian argument. You know, it's a utilitarian (laughs) argument. Greatest good for the greatest number of people times like the emotional distraughtness. Um, Gosh, superpower. Man, James, that is a, that is a really cool question. I would say, so I, I, I struggle, you know, with mental health and I would say if I could help people like if i could wave my hands and and people could could see themselves the way not perfect but the way that other people see them i feel like there's a you know there's so many teenage mm. girls that i talk to that are like oh you know everybody's looking at me and it, and it's and i felt that way all growing up i mean i was suicide i mean there's just a lot of mental games and i look back and i think you know nobody was looking at me and if it, but I wouldn't have believed that. And so it's almost like I, I don't want everybody to feel good about themselves all the time. I just want them to have like a, 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 sh- a head on their shoulders that's not completely screwed up in terms of how they're feeling. I feel like then they'd have a chance to, you know, make, you know, same mistakes and decisions, but they might not be as echoed as far. So that's kind of my, I think the, the, um, the, uh, the limitation would have to be that, that if they if they were feeling the you know that 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 as they are feeling the way that they are that they would have the courage to tell other people you know that something's wrong the emperor has no clothes so the limitation would be you know if you happen to fall out of that you know mindset that it would be totally okay to be like girlfriend that ain't true like literally you're listening to lies and you're telling them to yourself and you're talking about my friend and you're you and you're my friend and I don't let my top friend talk about my friend that way. I mean, just things like that, I think are really, um, would be really cool. I, th- I, and I think we can do it. Yeah. I love it. That's cool. Okay. Last question. What's something I should have asked you that I did not ask? Oh, I have a question for you. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> oh, sure. Why not? Uh Oh, <laughs> you had, I remember when I first met you, mm-hmm. you had a caricature of a, of a metal arm. Do you remember that? I It was like do. a robot arm. I what do. Was <laughs> it was so, so cool. <laughs> uh, my consulting company, which really doesn't do any consulting anymore. I just use it. Just, to, you just punch people in the face with your <laughs> steel yeah, arm. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just use that now to, to get people to talk to me about med tech these days. But that was the logo for my consulting company, Medical Device Guru. And I had integrated into that logo three things. And those three things were related to my prior three ventures. The colors came from, the orange color in the logo came from the 0 to 510 Medical Device Accelerator, where I was the entrepreneur in residence for a couple of years. The... Boy. There was some blue. Oh, the blue related yeah. to a shooting star of a company that, well, anyway. <laughs> we've all uh, got one. Yeah, we've, we've all got, all got one called Mobilizer. <laughs> and the the robotish arm you saw related to a company called Handminder, that technology was outlicensed. I don't know that anybody's ever going to make money on, on it, but That's okay. it was a device that was helping stroke survivors recover the function of their hands a lot faster and in a way cool. that was uh, sort of an active therapy instead of a passive therapy, which virtually so their all muscles therapy are, yeah. yeah, their muscles are moving with the tech. Yeah, yeah. well, there, it required some participation 
by yeah. the uh, by the the stroke survivor, and you know all the technologies and, and therapies that exist, or at least up to that point that existed, really were passive. They could do nothing yeah. and get the treatment, which didn't really rebuild the neural pathway so well, or not as fast. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what that was all about. Did not think I was going to be asked a question today. I'm have sorry. To think this <laughs> no, great. I just remember, I think when you were moving here, like somebody introduced me to you and I looked you up and I'm like, what is that? I, that I, whatever he's doing, I want that because that arm <laughs> was awesome. It's like, yes, I think it was Graham. I'm like, yes, get him here. He's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Megan, this has been a lovely conversation. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with me and our audience today and for, you know, really being so open with things and, and for everything that you do for entrepreneurs lately and just for being you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, we'll see you around. Yeah, Appreciate sounds you. good. Well, hey, to our Bentonville Beacon audience, thank you uh, once again for spending time uh, with me and and uh, Megan this time. Please keep coming back to hear more about Bentonville and its leaders and businesses in Northwest Arkansas, this place where you can have more of what you want and less of what you don't. And also a couple of favors, you know, send, send a link to this show to uh, a friend through social media or email or text or however you want to get it there. And uh, visit BentonvilleEconomicDevelopment.com to see all the episodes. And then finally, if you're listening on a podcast player, go ahead and hit subscribe. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Bentonville Beacon Podcast. We hope to see you next week.